This is White Collared, the podcast, Season 3, Episode 3, Deadline. Thank you for joining me for this, another episode of White Collared, which is a retrospective commentary on the USA Network television series, White Collar. My name is Eric Alton Glenn Hilliard. Deadline first aired on June 21st, 2011. It was written by Alexandra McNally and directed by Michael Smith. A cold as stone magazine journalist is being targeted with threats, possibly by someone in the company that is the target of her latest expose. When the FBI is called in, Diana finds herself working undercover as the journalist's much put upon executive assistant. Meanwhile, Neil and Mozzie plot to get their hands on the manifest that is preventing them from selling off any of the spoils recovered from the Nazi sub stolen from Vincent Adler. We start off and see that Diana is in Peter's office. He has a special assignment for her. This is the original art manifest from the U-boat. I need you to translate these 22 paintings in English. I can do that. Not here. Do it at home. Don't use the internet. I don't need someone piecing this together from your Google translation page. You're getting as paranoid as Mozzie. Maybe. You know what they say. When they're out to get you. Paranoia is only good thinking. Now, Diana realizes the concern is that Neil might somehow find out what she's doing. We know that because as Peter is giving her the instructions, she turns and looks at Neil, who's down at his desk in the bullpen. Now, as far as the saying goes, I, I haven't heard that version of it that Peter recites. The versions I've heard go something along the lines of, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they aren't out to get you. It's not paranoia if they really are out to get you. It's not paranoia, it's caution. And sometimes paranoids just have all the facts. So his version is just a little bit different than what I've heard. But there is some truth to it. There is some wisdom to it. There's an appropriate level of caution to it because he does have facts that other people don't have, even if they don't agree or recognize them as legitimate facts. And of course, as Peter tells Diana, we also learn that Agent Matthews from the DC Art Crimes needs to have this list in her hands before the end of the week because she's going to be leaving back for DC. So we have a very definite deadline that we've got to work under, her and Neil and Mozzie. Anyway, as Diana is done, she is leaving and she stops by Neil's desk briefly to chat with him. And as she leaves, taking her briefcase with her, Neil sends Mozzie a text. The swap is on. Mozzie's outside the FBI building trying to act casual and inconspicuous. And he also has a briefcase, which is a duplicate to Diana's. Once she's outside the FBI building, Neil comes out and catches up with her, holding out a scarf, telling her she dropped it. Uh, that's, that's like an old, really bad pickup line. As the two of them chat, Mozzie is closing in. Neil is trying to keep Diana there and occupied so Mozzie can approach and make the switch. But suddenly, a young woman approaches and greets them. Now, the arrival of this unexpected person means that the plan to swap the briefcases is busted. Neil gives Mozzie a subtle wave off with the slight shake of his head, and then Mozzie turns around and hides in nearby bushes. Then Diana introduces the unexpected arrival to Neil. Neil, this is my girlfriend, Christy. Christy? 
It's so nice to finally meet you. The infamous Neil Caffrey. I think his smile is more charming than devious. Thank you. Trust me, it's devious. We should go and be late for our reservation. Date night, huh? Where are you headed? Babu. Oh, excellent. Their truffle risotto is the inspiration for mine. The secret's the cheese. I use raw milk pecorino. You see, unpasteurized dairy is illegal. Devious. Illegal to sell. Mine was a gift. Well, we should combine forces. Let's have a date night this week. I'll bring Sarah. Sure, we'll put it on the books. Diana has clearly talked Christy about Neil and apparently done so in somewhat less than admiring terms. And perhaps in somewhat ironic terms, because although Diana and Christy both used the term devious, which was obviously a term used by Diana in describing Neil to Christy, it doesn't seem to necessarily have been used maliciously or harshly. But we know Diana's got mixed feelings about Neil. They've had moments, and then they've had moments. But again, it does seem that although... Diana had talked to Christy in less than admiring terms about Neil. They weren't horribly malicious because Christy doesn't seem to harbor any concerns about him as far as his attitudes, his motivations. She doesn't view him as any kind of a threat in any way. So it would seem that even her use of the word infamous is intended to be somewhat flattering. Neil suggests that they have a double date night, him and Sarah, Diana, and Christy, to which Diana says, sure, we'll put it on the books. Obviously not sincere. Being socially polite and socially insincere. Diana should know better than this. Since when has Neil let anything like social insincerity stop him from taking advantage of it? You just don't give Neil an opening like this. You just don't do it. But she did. She'll regret it. Diana and Christy leave. Neil meets with Mozzie, who's been hanging around not far away. They confer and try to formulate a new plan, but they don't actually come up with a plan. They only know that they need to get a look at that list before Diana gets it to Agent Melissa Matthews. And the only plan that they can come up with is that Mozzie will follow Diana and the briefcase. Next, we jump to a sidewalk where Peter and Clinton Jones are walking and talking. And Peter asks Clinton what he knows about a woman named Helen Anderson. Jones knows that she is an executive editor for a magazine called Circumspect and references what he calls a killer expose on big oil. Peter shows Jones what are apparently surveillance photos of Helen Anderson, one of which has the stereotypical sniper scope crosshairs drawn over her head with the word die beneath it. Die as in dead, not die as in dye your hair. Anderson's boss, who is the media mogul Leland Shelton, happens to be golf buddies with the head of the White Collar Division and has pulled a special favor. He's requested that the threats against Helen Anderson be investigated. Jones snidely remarks, gotta love country club politics. And he concludes that they're supposed to find out if the threat is coming from somebody she's digging into. Peter says, well, yeah, that too. Pause. When was the last time you were on a protective detail? Yeah, Jones, that does not set well with him. He's not happy. He is not happy at the prospect of babysitting a celebrity or a personality. Anybody, for that matter, I guess, probably. 
And given his personality, it probably chafes even more knowing that it's a babysitting job born out of a personal favor by both Shelton and the head of the FBI white collar division, both using their positions and authorities to utilize FBI resources for a babysitting job that wouldn't even get considered if it were an average person making the request or even an average person receiving such threats. Curiously, even though Peter would typically have a similar response, he doesn't seem to here. I attribute this to the fact that Peter knows how to handle office politics a bit better than Jones does. And he has a better understanding of when to say something and how to say it and when not to say anything at all. And I think that's the situation here because I'm sure that underneath it all, he totally agrees with Jones and Jones's assessment of the situation. At the circumspect offices, Leland Shelton introduces Peter and Clinton to Helen Anderson, and she is a real piece of work. Dismissive, disdainful, arrogant, intolerant of anyone that she believes to be beneath her, which is everybody, even Leland Shelton, who she supposedly works for. When Anderson realizes that Peter has the photos, she demands to know where he got them. Shelton tries to appease her by saying, He's concerned for her safety and that he gave them to the FBI. She doesn't ask Shelton where he got them. She knows. She calls her assistant in, berates her for giving them to Shelton rather than throwing them out as she had instructed, then tells her to get her things and get out. Then Anderson turns on Shelton, warning him, and I put that in sarcasm quotes, not to interfere with her staff, conveniently forgetting she works for Shelton, not the other way around. Now, granted, he hired her to run the magazine, it should give her the authority to run things as she sees fit, which is presumably why you hire someone as a manager, because you like how they run things. You like how they do their job as a manager, something so many upper-level managers and corporate and business owners need to remember. That's why you hire someone. But regardless, as owner, Shelton is still her boss. Regardless of the authority that he has entrusted with her, the responsibility he has entrusted on her, and the autonomy that he has given her, Shelton is still her boss. He still has the authority to override her decisions and her actions, and she really, really has no business talking to him like he is her subordinate. Like I said, a real piece of work. Anyway, Peter says, look, it's their job to look into the threats, and he asks if they could be related to a story that she's working on. Anderson dismissively shows Peter some souvenirs from previous stories. A knife that had been stuck in her door in Kabul. A grenade thrown into her camera bag in Chechnya. The remains of an effigy burned outside her door in West Virginia. She says that she writes stories that makes enemies. If she shares her information with the FBI and they screw it up, it all falls apart. And that all the picture means is that she's on the right track. To paraphrase a line from the Remington Steel episode, Santa Claus is Coming to Steal, she's determined to prove to Peter that a woman with intelligence, determination, and a certain amount of training can be as stupidly macho as any man. That, that pretty well sums her up. She also seems to assume that Peter and the FBI will screw it up. Because after all, she's not in charge, which means she can't tell them how to do it, which of course means that they'll screw it up. If she can't tell people how to do things, they'll screw it up. Yeah. Talk about micromanaging people. Peter points out that whomever it is behind the photos and the threats is someone who knows how to get close to her. And he knows he or she knows their routine as evidenced by the photos. That means they could have pulled the trigger. To which Anderson dismissively replies, but they didn't. 
Well, that proves it then. It's all meaningless. That proves that she's not in any danger, right? I mean, that's stupid. Anyway, when Jones says that the FBI will be there protecting her, but she won't even know it, she's again dismissive and condescending. Then basically kicks them all out of her office. And as the trio are leaving, she shoots Shelton a dirty look as if to say, who do you think you are? Yeah, a real piece of work. In the hallway, Shelton tells Peter, do what you have to do to keep her alive and that he will help in whatever way he can. The words sound authoritative, but the attitude, the tone of voice, the whole undertone is lacking of authority. It's the tone of somebody who's trying to keep their involvement secret, lest they be found out and punished for it. The guy sounds whipped, if you know what I mean. Anyway, after Shelton leaves them, Jones sums up the situation. So we're supposed to protect someone who won't let us within 100 yards of her. And at that same time, Melinda, who is the fired assistant, walks by on her way out of the office, carrying a box of her things. When Clinton expresses his condolences, Melinda actually seems somewhat relieved. She says that she's been there a month and she feels like she's aged 10 years in that time. Then she says, good luck to whoever Anderson's next assistant is, which gives Peter an idea. At the FBI offices, Peter has told Diana about the threat to Helen Anderson. Diana's excited. She expresses admiration for Helen Anderson and her work. When Peter says they're going to send Diana in to protect Anderson, she is all on board. But her early warning radar system starts pinging when Peter mentions that they can investigate the threats but they can't interfere with her story. And by the way, Anderson refuses FBI protection, so she can't know that's why Diana is there. When Diana reasonably asks, um, how's that going to work? Jones spills the beans when he says, how many words can you type per minute? Diana is visibly deflated, realizing that she's going to have to go undercover as a bodyguard slash assistant, as in dry cleaning and dog walking, as Neil puts it. Peter tells Diana that they've set her up with a bulletproof resume. Now all Diana has to do is nail the interview. Now, Diana seems surprised that she has to interview. And my question is, why? Did she miss the part about how Helen Anderson refused FBI protection and that she can't know that's why Diana is there? Obviously, under those restrictions, this wasn't set up with Anderson. And executives that have personal assistants generally hire them themselves. They're not hired by somebody from HR and just assigned to the executive. That may happen in a few cases, but primarily no. HR may pre-screen and submit resumes for consideration to the executive, but the executive themselves is going to do the actual interviews and hiring. After all, they have to be able to work with and rely on and interact somewhat intimately with this person who's going to be their assistant. And generally, that's not the sort of hiring decision that you can delegate to somebody. Diane is smart enough that she should have realized this, and it shouldn't have been a question in her mind. But perhaps she was simply assuming things or was so enticed by the prospect of working with Helen Anderson, somebody who she expressed admiration for, that she wasn't really thinking clearly or maybe wasn't really listening very carefully. Anyway, Diana's doubts begin to get much stronger the more Peter talks. I mean, the more he talks, the worse it gets for her. The resume has Diana as a graduate of Helen's alma mater 
impeccable work experience. Your dad worked for the embassy in England, right? You had a British nanny, right? So you've got the accent down, right? Helen lived in Northern England. She has a soft spot for Manchester. Peter hands her a dialect training CD and tells her to just you know, brush up on her accent. Diana is clearly taken aback, but she's nothing if not a trooper, so she says, okay, fine. Anything else? When Peter equivocates, it becomes clear that he and Jones are hiding something, and she wants to know. What's with the hard sell? Helen's driven. Driven's good. She's a little intense. Intense. She puts the hail in Helen. In order to protect her, you can't get fired. She's going to keep you on a tight leash, ask you to do things that are way beneath you. For the length of your assignment, your life is not your own. Yeah. So I'll be at the absolute beck and call of my tough new boss. <laughs> What's funny? Nothing. No. If you ever need any advice. So I'll be at the absolute beck and call of my tough new boss. It takes Peter a minute to get the joke. I would say that is because he doesn't consider himself a tough boss, at least not in the same sense that he means Helen Anderson is. And it is nice that Neil and Diana share the joke because in a sense, Diana will be in something of the same situation that Neil is currently in, a situation that they cannot simply walk away from because they don't like the demands being put upon them regardless of what those demands are, that the person that they are ostensibly working for is not really who they're answerable to. Diana is ultimately answerable to Peter, not Helen Anderson, and Neil is ultimately answerable to the FBI and the courts, not Peter. Yet they have to behave as if they are ultimately answerable to those caretakers. But of course, the difference is that Peter and Neil have developed something of a personal relationship that transcends or is in the process of growing to transcend their official relationship, despite the bumps and hiccups they experience along the way. Whereas Diana and Helen Anderson don't have that same personal relationship, won't have time to develop that relationship. And even if given the time to develop such a relationship, it's not very likely that they would develop that relationship because as we learn later in the episode, Helen Anderson doesn't really care about anyone but herself and maybe not even herself. Anyway, next we are at Neil's apartment. Sarah arrives, or rather returns. She had apparently stayed over for part of the night, most of the night, but left early for a meeting with a client, which is sort of why she has returned after the meeting. She needs advice, saying that she's working on a recovery and she's up against a Tech 98 alarm system, whatever that is, and she wants to know how to get around it. Neil offers several details about the Tech 98 security system as well as bits of advice, and she mentions having to deal with the guards. Neil suggests the possibility of running a Wally Burns where one person distracts while the other gains access. In the middle of their exchange, Sarah humorously remarks how odd it is to be discussing these sorts of things before work since it's probably not what normal couples do. They then make a half-hearted attempt at normal morning conversation, put that in sarcasm quotes, but they end up talking about investigations and evidence and such. Neil says, well, that didn't work. So how about this? We're invited to my coworker's house for a dinner party. And at first, Sarah thinks Neil's just being silly, but then realizes he's serious. Neil shifts the responsibility of the idea to Christy, telling Sarah that Diana's girlfriend thought it might be fun. Yeah, right. 
I'm betting Diana hasn't signed off on this and that contrary to what she might believe, it wasn't Christie's idea, but that somehow Neil led her into inviting them over. As Sarah gets up to leave, Neil asks what's behind the Tech 98. Sarah says, sorry, can't tell you. Then she asks Neil what he's up to. Neil says, helping Peter find out who's threatening to kill a public figure while Diana goes undercover as her assistant. Naturally, Sarah asks who it is, and naturally, Neil responds with Sarah's own words. I can't tell you. Next, we jump to Helen Anderson's office, where she is conducting interviews for a new assistant. And as she's waiting her turn, Diana can hear Anderson berating an applicant. You can't name the parent company of this magazine, yet you want to work with me covering the world of finance? Go. Dawson. Diana. Shelton Global Media is the parent company for this magazine. Leland Shelton is the founder, chairman, and CEO. Where are you from? Didsbury in Manchester. I lived in Manchester for a year when I wrote for The Economist. I know. So why do you want this job? I've followed you since you were a foreign correspondent for The Times. Your interview with the Secretary of State was the best thing I read last year. You're overqualified and too old. That means you can go. Little Miss Headband out there. She won't last a week because she doesn't know who she is or where she wants to be. I do. And your piece in last month's issue? That arms dealer had corporate backing. You didn't go for the throat. Considering the geopolitics involved, your conclusion was my intention. You start now. Your job is to take care of everything in my life so that I don't have to think about living it. Your first task, get rid of the girls out there. Thank you. Ever talk like that to me again and you'll find out what it feels like when I go for the throat. Now, first off, about the young woman who was interviewing as Diana was waiting. I think it was Einstein that said, why should I bother memorizing something that I can look up in a book? And there's a lot of truth in that. It's absolutely not essential in most cases to know the corporate structure of a company and its parent companies and its subsidiaries just to be somebody's executive assistant. Now, certainly, if you know that, there are things that you can help with that you might not be able to otherwise. But those are things that can be learned. Those are things that can be looked up. Now that I've got that out of the way, let's talk about Diana's interview. First of all, something that is very smart to do when you're going undercover. You tell as much of the truth as you can safely do to make it simpler to keep track of your story. And that's what Diana does. Second, where Diana shaded the truth, it was just that, a shading a particular perspective on the truth, close enough to the actual truth to be easily remembered, but just far enough away from the truth to conceal the details that might otherwise compromise her story. Now, third, you're overqualified and too old. Hmm. Sounds like a lawsuit waiting to happen. Not a smart move, actually, on Helen's part if Diana was a legitimate applicant and she had been turned down. An employer might be able to get away with claiming someone is overqualified. Although, what's wrong with somebody who's overqualified for a particular job applying for that job? I would think that having somebody overqualified is better than having somebody who is underqualified. And most people who fit perfectly the qualifications and get hired for a position aren't going to remain at that same skill level for very long because once they start doing the job, they're developing proficiencies and skills that quickly take them beyond qualified into the realm of overqualified. 
And in fact, a lot of people hold jobs that they would be considered overqualified for if they were to simply walk in fresh, not working for the company, and apply for those jobs that they already hold. Now, is their employer going to fire them on those grounds and then hire somebody who isn't overqualified to fill those positions? Probably not, unless they think they can get somebody who can do the job as well, but for less money. But that's a different discussion. So saying that somebody is overqualified for a position isn't necessarily something that's going to get you sued, but it is incredibly stupid. Now, on the other hand, saying that somebody's too old and refusing to hire them on those grounds, yeah, that's a lawsuit waiting to happen. Now, during the course of the exchange, Diana quickly realizes that Helen Anderson is looking for somebody who shares her attitudes and her beliefs and her chutzpah, but not too much. Not so much that they will become a problem, competition, a threat to Helen and her position, either by outshining her or turning on her. So Diana uses that to overcome the you're too old and you're overqualified objections. And then Helen says something that I think is very, very telling about her. She tells Diana, your job is to take care of everything in my life so I don't have to think about living it. This is a woman with serious issues. She's clearly not a person who wants to have to interact with anybody other than that one person. The rest of the world doesn't exist to her. Because in her mind, there's her job, and then there's everything else. And everything else is a distraction that she doesn't want to be touched by. Now, I've worked for bosses, both as an hourly employee and as a supervisor and manager, who had similar work-life balance attitudes as Helen Anderson, although to a lesser degree. And I've seen that, especially in the corporate world, the higher-ups love that attitude in their subordinates in middle managers and low-level managers in particular. But those higher-ups who love that attitude and that philosophy and that dedication, and I use that word in sarcasm quotes, are unwilling to live by those same standards themselves because their attitude is that's what they pay the middle managers to do. And those higher-ups seem to fail to realize that the there is work and everything else is a distraction attitude harms the company in the long run even though they may reap short-term rewards. And we've already seen some of that in the way that Helen Anderson treats her subordinates, including her former assistant. You can't create a hostile work environment or allow your management style to do so by insisting everybody live their life for the purpose of the job and that their external life doesn't exist and expect people to remain loyal to the company or to remain with the company. And both of those things, lack of employee loyalty or destroyed employee loyalty, and dismal long-term employee retention percentages can drag down a company as completely as anything else. Worse, it does so silently and behind the curtains drawn in place by those middle managers who are actually the cause of many of those problems, but who continually throw low-level employees under the bus to take the blame for those problems, keeping higher-ups totally oblivious until it's too late. And that's really the problem that exists for Helen Anderson, which does not bode well for the long-term health of the magazine unless Shelton deals with the situation. Anyway, off the soapbox. Back at the FBI offices, Peter updates Neil, saying that Diana has picked up two names, Paul Sullivan and Prager and Vaughn. The FDA file provided by a buddy of Peter's shows that Prager and Vaughn is a multi-level pharmaceuticals company whose products fill the typical American's medicine cabinet, but which has been plagued by product recalls and rumors of bad manufacturing. 
And Paul Sullivan is the head of new product development at Prager and Vaughn. He was hired to clean up after Prager and Vaughn's recent cold medicine recall. And in doing so, he may have saved the company financially. Peter suggests that if Helen's investigating him, that could mean that there's a problem with one of their new products. And if Sullivan is a sort of corporate troubleshooter, he might have a lot to hide. To which Neil adds, or he may have a lot to lose. His point is that pharmaceutical companies can spend upwards of billions of dollars to develop new products. And with that sort of investment, and potentially a company's existence at stake, someone with their financial well-being dependent on the company might be willing to have people killed to keep a failed, or worse, dangerous product from being prevented from being marketed. After all, even though pharmaceutical companies pay the FDA huge sums of money to help fund their approval process, roughly 45% of the FDA's general operating budget and up to 75% of the FDA's drug review budget coming from pharmaceutical companies that they're supposed to regulate, those pharmaceutical companies still can't always count on the FDA giving them the green light on a questionable product. Next, Peter and Neil show up at the offices of Prager and Vaughn. Peter flashes a badge to the receptionist. Neil has already pointed out that if they go in as the FBI, they blow Helen Anderson's story, so the badge identifies him as Ted Brown, FDA. Peter tells the receptionist that they are looking for Mr. Sullivan. The receptionist apparently begins to check Sullivan's appointment calendar because Peter tells her, don't bother, we're not on his schedule. As Peter and Neil head up the stairs, the receptionist dutifully tries to dissuade Peter by calling out after him, He's unavailable. You can't go up there. As they walk through the corridors with Peter flashing his FDA badge at everyone they see, Neil comments on Peter's impersonating an FDA official, saying he thought he, Neil, was the only one who could impersonate federal agents. The point being that, as FBI, Peter would be prohibited from falsely identifying himself. But Peter counters that he's authorized to go undercover. And that's what they're doing. So that makes it permissible. Neil asks if Peter actually has a plan. He doesn't seem to think so. Peter does, though, and he says, think of it as quail hunting. He fires off shots. Neil keeps his eyes open for a reaction. As they approach a door, which is the door to Sullivan's office, they catch a glimpse of him sending his assistant or secretary into the inner office. And maybe, just maybe, they overheard him tell the woman to put it away. At the very least, we hear it. Sullivan directs them to a somewhat casual conference area in his office, and introduces them to his legal counsel. Sullivan and his counsel seem cordial, but confused and defensive, saying that they met with the FDA just two weeks prior. Peter says, yeah, that was a scheduled meeting. Scheduled, as in you had time to set a stage and put on a dog and pony show. He tells Sullivan and his lawyer that he knows that there have been a lot of problems at Prager and Vaughn under Sullivan's watch, and it's his personal mission to make sure that he's cleaned up his, Sullivan's practices, and Prager and Vaughn's practices. Well, as Peter's disturbing the nest, Neil is hunting. He had seen the assistant go into the inner office at Sullivan's direction, and obviously thinks that there's something suspicious about the whole thing. He sends Jones a text requesting that he do something to get the assistant out of the office. After some quick research, Jones and another team member learn that she is Amy Sawyer. She's unmarried, and her only dependent is her dog, Sir Boots Barkley. Jones calls the office extension in question, and when Amy Sawyer answers, he says that he's a neighbor, 
he found her dog wandering in the hallway of the apartment complex. He says he has to go to work, so would she please come pick up her dog? She rushes off to take care of her dog, leaving the office unoccupied. Neil interrupts the conference between Peter, himself, and Sullivan and the attorney, saying he needs to take care of something. Then he steps into the office that Amy Sawyer vacated moments before. Peter steps up his nest-disturbing actions by making veiled accusations of deception, which incenses Sullivan, keeping his focus on Peter. Meanwhile, Neil breaks into the desk in the inner office and finds a suspicious document. A great deal of the document is redacted, which, of course, is always suspicious. After all, redacted is just another word for we're hiding something. Sometimes it's legitimate, but more often than not, not really. In the conference area, Peter is making demands for a slew of documents, quality control reports, reports on stage four clinical trials, and R&D for all products launched within the prior six months. And he wants it all today. As he's doing this, Neil has the time to perform a magic act with the document. What we see is him splitting the page into two layers, which does seem like a magic act. I'm not going to say it's fantasy because I did see a YouTube video that purports to show the same thing. And I'm going to also presume that somewhere, either Alexander McNally, the writer of the episode, or some contributing writer found evidence that this is possible. However, I would suspect that anyone who handled or looked at the remaining portion of the document would recognize that there's something wrong. First of all, the paper would be thinner than their regular stock. Second, I would expect that as the two layers are separated, this would cause them to curl as a result of that separation process. But after a moment, Neil comes out of the inner office and asks, are we done here? Because I've got a thing. Back at the office, Neil shows Peter the seemingly blank piece of paper. He explains about being able to separate high-quality paper stock into two, then demonstrates the process. As Peter tries to duplicate it, Neil takes fingerprint powder and applies it to the document. The Prager and Bond people had redacted the drug information after the document was printed, but with the back half of the original, Neil was able to resurrect the unredacted version, which reveals the name of a drug, Zybax. While things are going well for Peter back at the FBI offices, not so much for Diana at the magazine office. Where's the research I asked you for? I'm almost finished. You said for me to stay at my desk. Would you like me to make copies or answer the phone? Yes. There's a stain. Get it out. Set up dinner with Sam and Rushdie tonight. It's one o'clock. Vitamins. I've had malaria twice. Are you trying to undermine my immune system? Copies now. Helen Anderson's office. I dialed your FBI phone. I forwarded Helen's calls to myself. How's it going over there? I have so many paper cuts, I need a blood transfusion. It is impossible to remove wheatgrass from Chanel. She made me go to her brownstone to get Prozac to her parrot. It shrieked at me about deadlines. I don't know how long I can do this. Why isn't my mail open? I see why she gets so many death threats. Yeah, I've had bosses who do the same thing to me. Give me multiple number one priority items. And like Diana, when I asked which was really the top priority, if those multiple number one priority items came into conflict, which I knew they invariably would, the answer I received was the same one that Diana received. All of them are number one priority, which is total nonsense. Something no rational person would believe or even say. In the real world, when multiple items come into conflict, only one can take priority over the others. But Helen Anderson, like many bosses, seems to believe that 
The universe must bend to their whims and bow to their demands. So, like Helen Anderson, they make impossible demands and somehow and irrationally expect that they can be fulfilled because the universe must comply. I have said it. And that's what Diane is dealing with. And as a result, she recognizes that yeah, maybe it isn't just the targets of her story who might want to kill Helen Anderson. Maybe her employees should be considered possible suspects as well, because certainly some of them would want to kill her as well. And as she's venting to Peter, she opens up an envelope, which contains a photo of the inside of Helen Anderson's apartment and a copy of her front door key. We have something of a time jump, and we see Diana and Helen talking about the situation with the photo and the key. Helen says that the FBI is sweeping her apartment, and her son Charlie is on his way to his dad's, where he can stay until things settle down. Diana says that she's arranged with the New York Police Department to monitor Helen's ex-husband's building and her son Charlie's school. Although, frankly, I'm surprised this woman ever married and had a child, given her attitude about anything that isn't work being an intrusion. Anyway, when Diana asks if she should book a hotel room for her, Helen is her typical belligerent self, saying she's going to stay at home because they can't intimidate me with this crap. And as she says this, she tears up the picture that Diana had opened into pieces. When Diana points out that she had just destroyed evidence, Anderson says, so tape it back together. Not my problem. You want it so bad. FBI wants it so bad. That's their problem. They figured out. You figured out. Not my problem. Anderson dismisses Diana, saying, go to your job. I've got a phone call to make. Now, during this exchange, Helen does hold a photo of her and her son, returning to that photo several times, which, taken at face value, seems to suggest that there is some maternal emotion in her toward her son. But somehow, I think it's really something else. To me, it seems more mechanical than emotional, more synthetic than genuine, more obligatory than sincere. It's for the purpose of showing that she has emotions rather than actually experiencing those emotions. As if some part of her is saying, well, you should do this, you should feel this, so do this and do that to show this and that. Check the boxes, fill the blanks, do the proper things to show that you're having an emotional moment. And if you do, maybe you might actually feel something for a fraction of a second, just long enough to be able to claim some sort of humanity before you get back to the only thing that is real your isolated and insulated world of work. That's how it seems to me. Anyway, back at her desk, Diana eavesdrops on the phone call. She overhears Helen speaking to an informant and scheduling a meet. But one statement from the informant is significant and catches Diana's attention. People are dying. At the FBI offices, Peter is briefing Neil, Jones, and a few other members of the team. They have the cost-benefit analysis for a recall of a drug named Zybex. The marketing report shows Prager and Vaughn rolled it out in New York, Boston, and Philadelphia and is scheduled to go national in the next 30 days. The drug passed clinical trials, got FDA approval, and looked perfect on paper. But in spite of this, Prager and Vaughn wanted to know how much it would cost to take the drug off the market. Peter says, we need to find out why. As he's concluding, Diana calls. She tells him what she overheard about the informant and the meeting. Now, despite the fact that she doesn't know where the meeting is supposed to happen, meaning Peter can't secure the area, Peter tells her that he wants her at the meeting with Anderson. As they are finishing the call, Helen comes in. She tells Diana to cancel the dinner that had been scheduled for that evening, tell her driver he can take the night off, Helen's going to take a taxi home, 
and holding up her cup of coffee in front of Diana says, this doesn't fill itself. Helen turns to leave, but Diana says, you're meeting with a source tonight, aren't you? She says it as a question, but the implication of the question is clear. She knows something's up and she knows what it is, even though she doesn't necessarily know what it is, at least as far as Helen is concerned or as far as Helen is supposed to be concerned. Helen responds that Diana is asking a wildly inappropriate question. Diana counters by saying that she knew how important that dinner was to Helen, meaning she wouldn't have canceled it for anything less than something like meeting a source. She says that Helen would only take a taxi if she didn't want anybody to know where she was going and that this is her third cup of coffee. Diana concludes with, you should take me with you. Helen says, you want to help? Fine. It's my son's sixth birthday. Diane interrupts saying, it's not on your calendar, to which Helen says, yeah, I'm a Pulitzer Prize winner, not mother of the year. No kidding. She says her last assistant had arranged a party at her apartment for four o'clock that afternoon, but since it's now a crime scene, the party, the cake, the decorations, everything needs to be moved. The guests need to be called. Tell them she's sorry, but she can't make it to the party. She uses the excuse, and that's what it is, an excuse, that if this threat's real and she went, she would be putting Charlie and all the other children in danger. But really, I don't think it's anything more than an excuse. And even if the possible threat didn't exist, she would have found some other excuse not to be there. Or at the most, to simply put in a brief appearance and then be off again. Helen continues and says, oh yeah, she needs Diana to pick up a gift for her son. It's a robot. And Melinda, her previous assistant, wrote the information down somewhere, but Helen doesn't know where, and that's all because she fired her last assistant and kicked her out of the office before bothering to check on all those things. Not a smart move, lady. And oh, by the way, get new locks installed on my apartment, you know, the kind the White House uses. Diana asks, well, if I can get all this done, can I go with you to meet the source? Helen says, yeah, get everything done. Maybe I'll let you drive me. And then to make sure that Diana doesn't get everything done, she throws one more task at her. Translate a communique from Portuguese into English by six. After Helen leaves Diana's office, Diana calls Peter and tells him, if you want me at that meeting, you're going to have to help. At the FBI, Peter is going down the list of the tasks that Helen has piled onto Diana in order to enlist help from the rest of the team so that they can force Helen's hand and make it so she has to fulfill her challenge to Diana. One of the agents, name unknown, will handle the translation of the communique. Neil says he can get the locks taken care of. Peter hesitates and then asks, Mozzie? Peter tacitly agrees, but adds that he wants the master key. The master key. The master key? Why does Peter assume that there would only be one master key? Or that Mozzie couldn't and wouldn't make another? Anyway, Peter says he will take care of what he calls some robot hedgehog toy. Peter initially assigns Jones to handle the party, but it's painfully obvious that Jones is out of his depth when he asks, so streamers and a couple of balloons, right? Peter is struck by an inspiration born of desperation. He says, we need a ringer. We jump to a park where we see a bouncy rocket, huge bundles of balloons, tables, chairs, swarms of people organizing it, and Elizabeth as mission control. It's cowboys in space. Jones appears and is impressed, saying he wants Elizabeth to plan his next birthday party. Over at Neil's apartment, Neil is expressing displeasure at Mozzie's choice of locks, saying he won't even need his picks. He'll just bump it and be in. But 
when he tries to demonstrate his point, it doesn't go as expected. Mozzie tells Neil that he's modified it, and it's unlike any other lock of that type on the market. Neil accepts the challenge, pulls out a few other tools, and continues to work on trying to break into the lock, expressing admiration for Mozzie's work as he encounters unexpected changes and roadblocks to the process. Mozzie is immensely pleased with himself, saying, that lock is so complex, it is only rivaled by my mind. But, as they say, pride goes before a fall, and seconds later he hears a click. Neil has defeated Mozzie's pride and joy, and Mozzie is visibly shocked. Neil tells Mozzie how he managed it, but gives him the somewhat false assurance that, in spite of the fact that he defeated the lock in mere moments, it was tough. Yeah, it, it really was. Then he suggests some improvements. Mozzie's attitude instantly improves, and he begins making the modifications. And as he's doing that, the discussion moves to Diana's briefcase. Mozzie says that she took it back to the Sheagle's nest and reminds Neil that they've only got two days to get it. Neil assures Mozzie, we'll figure out something. Then we have a brief scene where we see Peter commandeering one of the robot toys off of the back of a truck. Then we jump to Ellen Anderson's office where Diana tells her the party was a hit, jackets clean, research is categorized and collated, and dinner's canceled, although in reality, it was never really scheduled. Diana had just said that. Oh, and here's your wheatgrass smoothie, which sounds like it would taste terrible, by the way. Just saying. Diana also hands Helen the keys to the new locks and the translation of the communique. And she's driving. Helen looks a bit stunned. Of course she is. She never intended for Diana to finish it and have to stand by her promise to let Diana come along. Next, we see that it's night. Diana and Helen arrive at an overpass near what seems to be a park. When they both get out of the car, Helen asks, What do you think you're doing? Diana says, I thought I was coming along with you. Helen says, Nope. I said you could drive me. Didn't say you could do anything more than that. She says, If you want to do what I do, you need guts good instincts, and patience. Then she dismissively tells Diana to work on that. Diana remains on the overpass above while Helen goes down and meets with the contact under another overpass. But things don't go as planned. As Helen is talking to the contact, Diana spies a shadowy figure behind them. Although the figure is dark, there's enough light behind him or her to see them pull a gun out of their pocket. Diana begins calling to Helen, then races toward her and the contact. Well, despite the fact that Diana just saved her life, Helen Anderson is not happy. But at least she got a flash drive out of it. You know, before Diana burst in and ruined everything by saving her life. Next, we see Diana entering the apartment where she lives. She's on the phone with Peter, telling him that Helen said that the source didn't give her a name. But she backs off on that a bit, saying, well... At least that's what Helen told her, suggesting that Diana doesn't necessarily believe Helen. Peter tells her she did a good job and that there will be an unmarked car watching Anderson's apartment all night. When Diana reaches the door of her apartment and enters, she is surprised to find Neil and Sarah there with Christy. Neil invited himself and Sarah under the pretext that people always say they're going to get together and they never do. Well, it's often because they don't really want to get together. They say it just to be polite and socially acceptable, but they don't really mean it. And it's obvious from the look on her face that when Diana had said it earlier, she didn't mean it. So actually, it was obvious at the time, but now even more so. Yet, despite her attitude, 
and her obvious displeasure when the evening started. By the time dinner is nearly over, we see that she has relaxed and seems to be enjoying herself. At one point, the discussion turns to Neil's risotto, to which Diana responds that she should find Neil and confiscate the dairy, which is unpasteurized and apparently illegal to sell in New York, although in an earlier conversation, Neil had stated that he hadn't bought it. It had been a gift, so that makes it legal, apparently. Neil jokingly tells Diana to not take her day with Helen Anderson out on him, and Diana makes a comment about her day and then tells Christy, I've got something you might be able to help me with. She pulls out a sheet of paper, and it's a copy of a document from the flash drive Helen's informant had given her. It's made up of multiple columns of numbers, but without any explanation. Since Christy is a doctor, and the information came from a pharmaceutical company, it makes sense that perhaps the numbers may mean something to her. After various possible explanations have been offered, Christy suggests that they could correspond to some sort of sample code, and she says she'll check at the hospital pharmacy the next day. Conversation then moves to Sarah with Christy asking what she does for a living. Christy is a bit surprised as she realizes, as Diana puts it, Neil steals them, Sarah gets them back. Christy asks how they met, and Neil makes a joke about how Sarah had been after him for a long time, which is followed by a bit of good-natured ribbing between the two. Neil then asks how Diana and Christy met, but Diana shuts down that conversation real fast. Apparently, she doesn't want to discuss how she and Christy met. Neil comments that Diana is just like Wally Burns, a friend of his that took forever to tell Neil how he met his wife. Of course, Sarah picks up on the reference. One person distracts, the other person gains access. Sarah invokes the dinner party rule, which isn't quite the dinner party rule I know of. She says that since Neil and Christy cooked, it falls to her and Diana to get the desserts. The version of the rule I know is that since you've prepared dinner, it's my job to take care of the dishes. But anyway, Neil and Christy move into the living room where he begins to scope out the place while making conversation with Christy, who, despite Neil's prodding, declines to tell him how she and Diana met. Christy mentions that the other evening Diana had been preparing for a morning meeting, working on something that she needed to drop off before she started her day with Helen Anderson. Then Neil spots a German dictionary on the shelf. It's all starting to come together. Diana comes in, and thinking that Christy had revealed how the two of them had met, she then unwittingly reveals it herself. It was at a pottery class, after which there is joking about the movie Ghost and good-natured ribbing about the quality of Diana's pottery work as exemplified by the salad bowl on the table. Later, back in Neil's apartment, he and Sarah are starting to make out with her beginning to unbutton his shirt. But she just can't resist asking why they ran a Wally Burns on Christy. When Neil says he can't tell her, she says, Oh, sorry and begins rebuttoning his shirt. Apparently, her philosophy is, if I don't get what I want, you don't get what you want, even if what I want is what you want. When Neil points out that she doesn't necessarily tell him all the details of her job, she concedes the point. As they resume their makeout session, Mozzie walks into the apartment, unannounced. When he realizes what he walked in on, he curtly tells them, get a room. Sarah responds in the same tone, saying, we are in a room. Neil completes the statement by saying, yeah, my room. Mozzie begins sulking and says, next time I make a lock, I guess I should make it for your door, with heavy sarcasm on the word your. Sarah rebuttons her blouse, which had somehow come unbuttoned earlier in the process, saying, well, that killed the mood. And then she leaves. 
Mozzie seems to have a problem with boundaries, more precisely respecting other people's boundaries. It's been a detail that hasn't really been a huge issue up till now, but it's becoming more obvious as time goes by, which is curious because he's very aware and resentful of violations of his boundaries by others. But he seems to have a blind spot when it comes to his violations of other people's boundaries. But anyway, after Sarah's gone, Mozzie asks if there's any news on the list. Neil tells him that Diana has already given the list to Agent Matthews and that it's undoubtedly on lockdown in her hotel room. Mozzie says, no problem. After all, they know when she's leaving town, so they just use the same plan as before, swap the briefcases. The only difference is who, where, and when. The next day at the FBI, Peter, Neil, and Clinton Jones are in the conference room. Peter tells Neil that Christie has identified the numbers that came from the source, and they match the serial numbers of sample packets of Zybax listed in the hospital's computer. But those samples are no longer in the hospital. PNV reps replace the original samples with new samples, the new samples having different packaging and different serial numbers. Neil suggests that perhaps the original samples were from a bad batch and that PNV did an undercover recall replacing bad samples with good samples under the pretext of new packaging. The problem is that there's no way to recover all the samples that had originally been distributed to the hospital and were being distributed to patients prior to the swap out. Peter connects this to what Helen source had said. There are people taking bad Zybex that could kill them, but they have no concrete proof of any of this. And without proof, PNV will bury the Bureau under lawsuits if they try and do anything. So they need to find that proof. Back at the magazine office, Helen tells Diana that her contact has emailed her saying that he has the proverbial smoking gun. It's an incriminating memo. But after what happened in the park, the contact is afraid to remove it from the office because he might be searched. She tells Diana that there's a launch party for Zybex going on that afternoon, which is how she will get into the PNV offices. Supposedly, the contact will meet her there, then guide her to the memo. Earlier, Helen Anderson had told Diana that the job required good instincts and patience, two things she's not employing right now. She knows that somebody at PNV is on to her and her contact, as evidenced by the threats and the presence of the unknown figure at their meeting. Given that the people at PNV know that she's working with an insider who is likely to reveal the information that they want hidden, and given that her contact has already said that they feel like they're likely to be searched if they try leaving the offices with the documentation, then it's likely that the PNV folks know who the insider is. So if they would search him, why would Helen be allowed into the building and then not expect to be searched? And given that the PNV people know that she's working with this insider to reveal the information, why would they let her into the launch party in the first place? They could very easily put her name on a no admittance list. So the fact that she either has an invite or is not on a no admittance list shouldn't make sense to her. This should be sending up alarm bells and telling her to come up with a different plan. But at least she has enough sense to take Diana as a second set of eyes. Except she warns Diana don't make me regret this, basically saying don't do anything. After this, Diana calls Peter and brings him up to date. According to the source, the memo authorizes Zybax be repackaged as part of a covert recall. It's signed by the head of new products. Paul Sullivan, we get the memo, we get him. Stay close to Helen. Be careful. Whoever had her in their sights is still out there. I won't let anything happen to Helen. 
Oh, I know you'll take care of her. I'm worried about you. What a contrast between bosses, between Helen Anderson and Peter Burke. Helen shows no sense of concern for her employees. Her comment to Diana about not making her regret taking her is all about Helen. It's primarily about Helen's self-importance, but it's also about her disrespect for and lack of confidence in Diana's abilities. Peter's comments to Diana are all about confidence in her abilities, and Peter isn't concerned about Diana making him look bad. He's concerned for her safety, regardless of the outcome, which potentially could include making Peter look bad in some respect, especially if things go sideways. Helen manages by fear. Peter manages by mutual respect. His respect for his people and the earned respect that they have for him. If you ever need an illustration of the differences between good and bad management technique, you have it right here in this episode. And of course, Diana's response to Peter, don't be worried about me. I'm going to walk out that front door of PNV with everything we need to take them down shows that mutual respect and mutual confidence each has in the other's abilities. Next, we have a time jump and we see Peter telling Neil that something about the situation is bothering him. It's the fact that Helen Anderson is the type of person who will do whatever it takes to get whatever she needs. Sullivan knows that Anderson is looking into PNV. Sullivan knows that there's an insider leaking that information and that Helen is going to follow up on that information. And Sullivan is going to be following her, letting her lead him to that inside source if he doesn't already know. But given that the source was followed to the rendezvous with Helen. Sullivan knows who that source is. But maybe Peter just doesn't want to acknowledge that yet. Anyway, as they're talking, Jones comes in with additional information on the sheet of paper that Neil brought in from the PNV offices, that split sheet. The tech teams did additional work on it and were able to make the signature at the bottom legible. Casey Mendel, head of R&D. They found their source. Peter then tells Clinton to call Diana and let her know. Then Peter and Neil take off to talk to Mendel. At the PNV party, Helen sends Diana away, telling her that she's just there to observe and keep her distance. Helen heads up to the upper deck, and Diana heads over to the bar and then calls Peter. Casey Mendel isn't on the guest list. Peter tells her that he isn't at his office either, so he and Neil are headed to Mendel's house. As they approach Mendel's apartment building, they see an ambulance and paramedics. The paramedics tell Peter that a woman in the building came home from work to find her husband on the floor and called in for emergency assistance, but it was too late as the guy had apparently died that morning. And they confirm that the victim was, in fact, Casey Mendel. At the party, Diana is still on the lower level. Helen is still on the upper level. An unidentified man approaches Helen and says, the memo's in room 2642, on the desk. As Helen heads toward the office area, Diana finds herself the subject of some intrusive attention as a party goer tries hitting on her. In the process, her attention is diverted from watching Helen. At the same time, Peter calls and tells her Mendel's dead. Whoever contacted Helen pretended to be her source, and it's a setup. Diana suddenly realizes she's lost track of Helen, but she knows that she had been upstairs, so that's where she heads. In the office area of PNV, Helen has found the office, but she discovers that the memo isn't on the desk as promised. 
as she's looking through papers on the desk. Behind her, she hears the office door close and lock. She turns and sees her path to the door blocked by a menacing man. She tries ordering him out of her way, but he doesn't move. He's not one of her employees. He's not intimidated by her. Instead, he pulls out a hypodermic syringe from his pocket, and she concludes that it contains an undetectable drug that will kill her, after which the man will dispose of her body, then arrange to have all her computers and files destroyed. With the man's attention focused on Helen, Diana has been slowly approaching. As the man moves toward Helen, Diana shoots out the glass door, enters the room with her gun pointed at the man, and tells him, drop it or I'll put a bullet in each kneecap. Although personally, I would probably reference another body part located eh, about a foot higher. But that's just me. Now, Diana does do one thing I don't understand. She pulls back the hammer of the gun. Doesn't really make sense to me. She has a semi-automatic pistol which loads around into the chamber and cocks the pistol after each shot. The hammer should have already been locked into firing position, ready for a simple trigger pull. The only reason she would need to recock the gun would be is if the gun had a decocker and she had used it after the first shot. But I don't know why anyone in their right mind would do that sort of thing because in this situation, you, you don't want your gun decocked and have to go through extra steps just to take a shot if it's necessary. But that seems to be the only explanation for this within the world of the show. In the real world, it was just a screw-up on somebody's part. Anyway, the unknown would-be killer realizes that the jig is up, and he puts down the syringe. Diana holds out her purse and directs Helen to get the handcuffs out and put them on the perp. Helen does, but she's a bit stunned, asking, Who are you? Diana, of course, identifies herself and then follows up with the somewhat snarky comment, Damn right, I'm overqualified. Which, of course, is a reference to Helen's earlier criticism during Diana's interview. And a bit of a put-down of Helen and her attitudes, if we're to be totally frank. Later, back at the FBI offices, Peter and Diana are talking. We learn that the bad Zybex caused brain hemorrhages when taken with certain other medications, and that P&V figured they'd roll the dice on any medications still out there because settling lawsuits would have been cheaper than initiating a recall. But in order to accomplish that, they had to silence Mendel and Helen. Peter then asks if there's any chance of getting the report that Diana needs to do by the end of the day. Diana, being no dummy, makes a deal with Peter. She says, yeah, if I can get it to you by lunch, can I go to that tech conference in Miami? And Peter falls for it. He agrees, and then with a big grin on her face, Diana immediately pulls out the report and hands it to him. Then we see Diana heading out of the office, but Helen Anderson enters and stops her. You know, just the other day, I wondered where have all the Boy Scouts gone? There are some Girl Scouts here, too. Diana, a woman like you shouldn't be surrounded by fluorescent lights and Old Spice. You are the best assistant I have ever had. I want you back. Whatever they pay you here, I will pay more than double. I don't need a byline. At my interview, I told you I knew who I was and where I wanted to be. That's right here. I wouldn't be standing here if it weren't for you. You should hire your old assistant back. She's the one who saved your life. I have a deadline. Helen seems totally dismissive of not only Diana's job, but also of all the people she works with. She's only a cop, and she works with a bunch of men, both of which are apparently not worthy of her respect. 
And then when Diana suggests that Helen hire back Melinda, the assistant that she had fired for being concerned with her safety, suddenly Anderson's respect for Diana seems to evaporate. And no, she's not going to hire Melinda back. No, she's not going to admit that she was wrong to fire her in the first place. No, she's not going to admit that she's anything less than a superwoman and someone who doesn't need anyone helping her with anything. Although she literally relies on others for virtually everything in her life, which she admits, but that's a job for somebody else. Within her world, within her job, she's a superwoman and doesn't need anybody else. Anyway, talk about a narcissistic and toxic personality. That's Helen Anderson. And I have to think that Diana is reassessing her respect for Helen Anderson. Sure, she probably still respects her as an amazing journalist, but I have to imagine that Diana's respect for Anderson's professional accomplishments is now tempered by a lack of respect for her as a person. And yes, you can have respect for somebody and their abilities in their job, in their profession, and lack respect for them as a person. The two are not the same. After Neil teases Diana with a quote from the movie Ghost, Peter comes up, joins the conversation, and then connecting the ribbing with the movie and then connecting it to the meeting between Diana and Christy, Peter tells Neil that if he knows how Diana and Christy met, then he's officially part of the family. But when Peter says this, Neil has a look on his face that shows regret or sorrow or disappointment or something. I'm not sure what. I'm not sure exactly how to express it. Neil knows that Peter is on to him and Mozzie. He recognizes that Peter is trying to hide this from him. And it's a curious juxtaposition because on the one hand, Peter doesn't trust him. He suspects him of being involved in the theft of the art treasures and is working to set a trap for him and Mozzie. On the other hand, he genuinely seems to be accepting of Neil as part of the team, part of their work family. There's sort of a cognitive dissonance in Neil's mind about how Peter can be so seemingly genuine and genuinely accepting of both seemingly contradictory propositions. I think there's also another cognitive dissonance in Neil's mind in that he's disappointed that Peter believes that he's somehow involved with the stolen treasure, even though at the same time he knows that he is involved with the stolen treasure. And I think that... Inasmuch as he's happy on the one hand to be considered part of the team and part of the work family, on the other hand, he's disappointed in himself for having betrayed his family by hiding the fact that he has the treasure, while at the same time trying to excuse himself inasmuch as he didn't steal the treasure and didn't even know that Mozzie was going to until after the fact. So I think there's a lot of conflicting beliefs in Neil's mind, conflicting emotions, and it's it's, yeah, it's creating a lot of emotional and mental and logical and rational upheaval in Neil's mind because he's accepting all these things that are seemingly somehow mutually exclusive. Anyway, Neil goes one direction to take a phone call and Peter and Diana go another direction to talk between themselves. Diana tells Peter that, hey, Neil was at my place, but there was nothing for him to find. And Peter tells her that it's not a problem. Agent Matthews has assured him that the list has never been out of her sight and is safe. In the meantime, Neil is taking that phone call. Neil, we got a problem. 
You at the airport? Of course. I said I'd follow Melissa, and I did, all the way to the airport. She took an earlier flight. You're saying the list is gone. I'm watching it take off right now. All right, take a breath, Moss. Breath? The list is on its way to D.C. Neil, how did this happen? I have some questions about this. My first question is, how did the plan not work? The fact that Agent Matthews took an earlier flight shouldn't have made a difference if Mozzie was following her, which he said he was, and if he had the briefcase with him to be used in the switch, which we could see that he did. So how did the plan not work? At this point, it would seem to me that Mozzie screwed up. He followed her, but was too far back to affect the exchange before she boarded the plane, or he didn't follow her and she slipped out and he realized too late that she was gone and caught up to her at the airport too late, or I don't know, something. But it looks to me like Mozzie screwed up and he just doesn't want to or can't admit it. My second question is, why did Agent Matthews take an earlier flight? True, it's not unreasonable to think that it was a perfectly innocent thing for her to do. Maybe her schedule changed. Maybe it became more convenient to take an earlier flight. Or she needed to get back to D.C. earlier than originally anticipated because something came up unexpectedly back at the D.C. office. Any number of reasons. But it's also not unreasonable to think that it was part of a plan. There was no reason that we know of related to the sub-treasure for Matthews to stay in New York for nearly the full work week. Granted, Diana needed to do the translation, but realistically, there's no reason to expect that would have taken a full week. So there was no reason for Agent Matthews to plan to stay the full week. So if she was there strictly with regard to the sub-treasure and the list, which is how it was presented in the last episode, then the only reason for her to remain there for more than the day was if she was waiting for the list, which, like I said, shouldn't take a week to translate, and if she and Peter are working together on the treasure in some way beyond just getting the list translated and back to Washington, D.C., now, certainly there would be talking and discussing between the two of them, and either Peter would have told her to let him know if anyone, anyone other than himself, talks to her about the sub-treasure, or if she mentioned at some point in their conversations that she had bumped into an Interpol art crimes agent, Chris Gates, a.k.a. Neil Caffrey. Either way, Peter would have learned about Neil's encounter with Matthews, and he would have understood the significance of that meeting and conversation. Now, this supposition seems supported by the fact that, as Neil and Mozzie's conversation concludes, Peter looks at Neil and asks, are you coming? Which by itself isn't anything significant, but he's got a devious grin on his face that seems to say, beat ya. Which brings up another question. If I'm reading that correctly, if that is what Peter's attitude is on his face, why would he do that? Why would he do something that lets Neil know that he... Peter knows what Neil's up to. This doesn't seem to be a good move. If his goal is to dissuade Neil from continued involvement with the sub-treasure, challenging Neil's ego and turning it into a game of gotcha doesn't seem likely to succeed. It seems to be more the sort of thing that would make Neil more defiant of Peter's efforts and more determined to beat him. So why do it? Maybe we'll get the answer in the next episode. Maybe not. Who knows? But that does bring us to the end of this episode. I'll remind you that the website, www.whitecolloredpc.com, 
has links to the resources I've used in preparing this episode and also has links to the White Collar Fandom Facebook group. If you're not a member of that group, head on over and join. I want to thank you for listening and ask you to please join me for the next episode as I share my thoughts on Season 2, Episode 4, Dentist of Detroit. Until then, take care and God bless.